All right, John chapter 17, verse 5. Our Lord prays, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. In John chapter 17, our Lord is preparing his disciples for his crucifixion, that he will soon go to the cross, that he will soon lay down his life in order to pay for the sins of mankind and more specifically to pay for their sins and more specifically to pay for our sins. Now the entire ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has led up to this moment. This is why Jesus came to earth. Back in John chapter 12 verse 27, he made the statement, Now is my soul troubled. And you can imagine paying for the sins of the world and bearing the wrath of God would be something that would trouble your soul. Now is my soul troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. The soul of our Lord was troubled. And there were a lot of things troubling the soul of our Lord that day. There was the sin of the world that was troubling his soul. Sin troubles God. Sin troubles our Lord. He was troubled by the death and the destruction that sin brings. How many times does the Bible say that he looked out upon the multitudes and he saw them as sheep scattered without a shepherd and how he was moved with compassion toward them? Jesus sees the destruction, the lostness, the brokenness that sin brings and it troubles him. And he was also troubled by the price that he would pay for sin. Jesus said the Glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Here Jesus is thinking back to a moment before he came to this earth, a moment back in eternity when he was in unity, when he was one with his father, with our father, when he and God and the Holy Spirit were in this close-knit relationship and fellowship in heaven, and he's about to see that broken if only for a moment. There comes a moment when Jesus hangs on the cross where he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And people say, well, that's when God turned his back on Jesus because he could not look upon sin. And it's actually worse than that. This relationship, this fellowship, this unity that Christ and the Father had at that moment was broken. As God had gone from loving Father to judge and executioner, and he was carrying out his wrath upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But this was the moment this was the reason that christ came to earth this was the mission it would have been incomplete for jesus to have gone back to heaven without going to the cross i mean his life here on earth was one of self-sacrifice his life was one of poverty we heard jared teach us during sunday school this morning how he humbled himself how he made himself of no report how he became an average man just like the rest of us and he lived in poverty that he lowered himself from the riches of heaven into the poverty not just of this world but the poverty of living among the lowest class of this world making himself a servant he had gone through all of that and all of that would have been pointless had he not followed through by going to the cross if you take a trip to the grand canyon but you don't see the grand canyon what was the point of making that trip if you go to Washington, D.C., and you don't visit the Lincoln Memorial, what was the point of making that trip? If you go to the lake and you don't fish or swim or barbecue, what was the point of making that trip? There was, you missed it. The mission of Christ was this moment, to go to the cross, to redeem us, to pay for our sins. And that's why 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners 
of whom I am chief. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, in our verse today, Jesus is praying. He's in the middle of his prayer, and he says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. In the Greek language, words are different. Y'all ever watch Star Wars? Yoda? You know, he, he talks backwards, doesn't he? No, he doesn't talk backwards. We just have an English-centric view of language. In the English language, we're chronological, okay? You did this. Subject, verb, object, or, or, or um, predicate nominative. Excuse me, I'm trying to think of language here. In other languages, Greek included, which is what the, Old what the New Testament was written in, it's not so much who did what, it's thought by thought. And the most important part of the thought comes first. Mm -hmm. And so in English, I would say, I gave the boy the gift, okay? I, me, gave what I did. The gift, what, okay? I gave the boy the gift. But in Greek, whatever's the most important is where I would start with the sentence. And so Jessica may come up to me and she'd say, what did you do with the gift? I would say, the gift, because that's what we're talking about. The gift I gave to the boy, all right? Who did you give the gift to? The boy, gave I the gift too. I mean, that's, that's the way the Greek language was spoken. And so I say all that to say this. When we read in John 17, 5, and now, O Father, that, that, the, the positioning of and now, that's important. Notice how and now comes before O Father. And now, O Father, who is the Father? God. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That sentence reads a lot differently in the Greek. But in the Greek, there's two things that has got in common with the English, and that is, and now is the first thing you read. And now, glorify. Glorify comes from the Greek word doxosin, comes from the root doxa, to make renown, to cause to be well known, to cause to be well thought of. And so Jesus, of course, is praying for God to glorify him, but in praying in this way, saying, and now, O Father, glorify, Jesus is declaring for our benefit the importance of the glorification happening right now. This is his moment. This is the moment that it all comes down to. And the glory that Jesus speaks of is the honor, the praise, and the renown that comes with being the only begotten Son of God, God in flesh. This is the glory that Christ prayed for. He had left that glory. He had left that renown. He had left that honor. He had come down to earth. He had lived life as a child. He had to go to school just like everybody else had to go to school. He had to memorize the Old Testament the way all the other kids had to memorize the Old Testament. He had to take tests the way the other kids had to take tests. You ever feel like, you know, hey, I'm one of the honor students. I shouldn't have to go to school today. I should get a break. I've been working hard. But you don't get to, right? Because the state says you have to attend school. And there's no exceptions, and Jesus was part of that, no exceptions. This is, but he left that glory behind. When he became an adult, he became a carpenter. He had to deal with difficult customers. He had to interact with hard people. When he began his ministry, he was rejected by the majority of the people of that day. And the people that did follow him just wanted to see what they could get out of it. And when they got what they wanted out of it, they left. I mean, Jesus healed 10 lepers. He healed 10 lepers. Only one came back. To, to praise him and to thank him. 
I mean, people would get what they wanted from Jesus and they would leave. You ever feel like people just do that to you? They're, they're, I'm sorry I've lost touch. It's just been so busy, but I need to borrow some money. And the second you give them the money, you never hear from them again, right? You ever had this happen? Jesus knows what that's like. So what does all this mean? He had left his glory behind and is the glory that he is about to take back up again, that glory of being the only begotten Son of God, God in flesh, in the presence with the Father. He's about to take that back up. So what does all this mean? It means that Christ was glorified in the gospel. This is the moment, and now glorify. He's not saying glorify me now like a kid would want their Christmas present now, or like we want the boss to pay us now, or that we would really like our problem to be solved now. What he's saying is this is the moment. This is the moment we've worked toward, Father. Glorify me in this moment. Christ was glorified in the gospel. It means that Christ will also be glorified when he returns to this earth. And finally, it means that when it comes to the glory of Christ, we have a decision to make. So first, let's talk about Christ being glorified in the gospel. Christ is preparing to go to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. And more importantly, he is going to the cross to pay for our sins. And that's an important detail to keep in mind. As religious people, we talk about Jesus paying for the sins of the world, and we think about Jesus paying for the sins of those sinners who are out there somewhere. But he paid for our sins too, and we have sins too. That's, that's the offense of the gospel. The, the gospel is offensive to so many because it tells them they have sins that they need to be redeemed from. There's a Super Bowl commercial that's supposed to air. I think there's two Super Bowl commercials supposed to air today, part of the He Gets Us campaign. And I'm not endorsing the campaign. I don't know enough about it to endorse it. But I know that what they're trying to do is they're trying to put the message of Jesus Christ in front of a mass audience. And it's being deemed offensive. Nobody's seen the commercial yet. But the media is saying, we know who made it. We know what they stand for. Therefore, it's offensive. What's offensive about it? It's offensive in that the mere mention of Jesus Christ indicates that there was sin that you need to be redeemed from, that you need to be forgiven from. This is offensive to a lost world who is embracing their sin and wants to continue to live in their sin. But you know who else is offensive to? It's, it's offensive to the religious folks who believe that they don't have any sin anymore, that they, ne that they never sin, that they are perfect, they've got it all together with God. It's offensive to them to think that they continually need redemption as well. And that's why the gospel is so divisive. But this is the moment. This is the moment that Christ would pay for our sins, that he would redeem us, that he would cleanse us, that he would restore our hope. And this is the moment that the scriptures have built up to. This has been the focus of the prophets. This is what the Old Testament prophets had prophesied about. The coming redeemer, the new covenant that would be written on their hearts, the, 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 the new rule, the, the new kingdom, the, the, the new life in Christ. This was the focus of the prophets, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ, and it was the fulfillment of the law. This is the redemption that God repeatedly promised in the Old Testament. You begin reading the Old Testament, open up the book of Genesis. Chapter 1, he creates the world, and he ends chapter 1 by creating man in his own image. Chapter 2 tells us a little bit more about the creation of man. Tells us that God rested on the Sabbath, and then tells us that when God created man, he formed him of the dust of the earth, 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And when I last spoke with you, I talked to you about what that life means. It is an indwelling. It is a consciousness. It is a becoming sentient. It is the ability to think, to reason, to imagine, to hope, to dream, to solve problems, to create. Attributes that God has that he gave to us. But what happens in chapter 3? In chapter 3, Satan tells man, talking to Eve, but Adam's there, and a lot of times salespeople will talk to the husband by talking to the wife because the salesman knows that if he gets the wife on board, the husband will follow. And Satan tells Eve that in the day that you eat of that fruit that God told you not to eat, you'll be like God knowing good and evil and you won't have to listen to God anymore. That's what the original sin was. God had just given man life and man's first act was to try to get God out of his life. That was the original sin. But in Genesis chapter 3, if you keep reading, God tells the woman and he tells the serpent that he put enmity between the vision between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and it shall bruise his head, and, and, and he shall bruise his heel. Basically, the serpent being the power of Satan, the seed of the woman, Christ, would crush the head of the serpent, but in the process, the seed of the woman would suffer a death blow. His heel would be bruised. Right then in Genesis chapter 3, you have God declaring the gospel. This is the redemption that God had promised all the way back to the beginning, going back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You've got the ark in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. What was the purpose of the ark? The purpose of the ark was to save God's people from his wrath. There you have a picture of the gospel. It's the ram provided as a substitute for the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham finally has the son that God had promised to him all these years, and God says, I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice. Abraham says, okay, but we're not going to exactly tell uh, Sarah what we're doing today. And they go up the hill, and they're going up the hill, and Isaac's a smart, a smart guy. He's like, hey, father, okay, we're doing a sacrifice. We got the wood. We got the fire. Where's the animal? And Abraham, evidently he hasn't told Isaac what they're doing either. But, I, but Abraham, in his wisdom, he says, the Lord himself will provide a sacrifice. And the Lord did, provided a ram caught in the thicket. The redemption and the the redemption that God promised throughout the Old Testament, the gospel is right there in that ram caught in the thicket that replaced Isaac on that altar. It's the Passover lamb in Exodus 12. It's the temple offerings in the book of Leviticus. It's the serpent on the pole in Numbers chapter 21. Y'all remember John chapter 3, that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The serpent on the pole in the wilderness was this. The people had rebelled against God, so God sent them poisonous snakes into their camp, and if any man was bit by a snake, he died. But God told Moses to make a serpent out of bronze, put it on a pole, put it in the midst of the camp, and if anybody is bitten by one of these snakes, if they will just look at that bronze serpent, they'll live. The gospel and God's promised redemption is that bronze servant on the pole in the wilderness. The kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth and the high priest in the book of Zechariah, you go to chapter 3, you will find the high priest Joshua, which by the way is the Old Testament name for Jesus, bearing the sins of the people before, the God, before God the Father. And these are just to name a few. All throughout the Old Testament, I mean, we could go on for this for hours. I could be pulling Old Testament examples saying this is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of Jesus. This is a picture of the redemption that God has been promising to us. It all built up to this moment that Jesus Christ would go to the cross. In this moment, God would fulfill his promise and the faith of his people would be made sight. 
And what a blessing that would be to see the promises of God that you have been believing in the Bible all these years come to pass where you can see them and it's all tangible. And that's what's happening in this moment is Jesus is praying and now, glorify, now, O Father, glorify thou me. What Jesus is saying is let's do this, glorify me, let's make this tangible, let's fulfill these promises. In this moment, Christ would go from being another prophet or great teacher to being the turning point of human history. That's glorification. He's renowned. He's well thought of. He is revered. He, he cannot be ignored. Secular history records the works of Christ. I studied it in my Western Civilization class at Kilgore College. Kilgore College is not a Christian college. It is not a theological school. It is a public junior college. History of Western civilization. There is a subchapter on the life of Jesus Christ and the impact that he had on the world. Were they theological? No. Did they teach me how to be saved through that? No. What they did teach was the teachings of Jesus revolutionized the way people thought and his followers infiltrated the entire Roman world, which caused the entire world to become more or less Christian in one way or the other. From that point on, within just a, within one or two generations, Christianity had infiltrated the known civilized world. No religion had ever spread that fast before, and secular history cannot ignore it. Secular history records the rapid spread of Christianity. It records the influence that Christianity had on the Roman Empire. And it records how Christianity subdued Western culture. You think of Western culture. You think of European culture. You think of American culture. You think of a culture that is civilized. You think of a culture that is proper. You think of a culture that is advanced. That wasn't the case before Christianity. Before Christianity, we were barbarians. Before Christianity, we participated in human sacrifice. Before Christianity, we did atrocities and genocide on, on our neighbors and on our, on our enemies. Christianity made Western culture and Western civilization something completely different. It's no reason why the history of Western civilization cannot ignore the influence of Christianity. Without the influence of Christianity, you do not have Western civilization. And we know why he's the turning point. And we know why the glory is his now. Secular history may try to figure out why is this? How did he have such an impact? What was so different about his teachings? Why, how did he infiltrate so many people? How did he influence so many people? We know why. Because he paid for the sins of the world and he redeemed his people. We know what happened on that cross. We know on that cross we were given forgiveness. We know on that cross we were cleansed. We know on that cross we were given the great reset. The great reset. You ever play Nintendo? And the game's not going the way you want it to go, so you just reach over there and hit the reset button. Let's start this thing all over again, all right? That's what Christ did for us on the cross on a spiritual level. It is the hitting of the reset button. And we know this for a fact because we know he rose again. And that's what distinguishes him and gives him the glory. Without the resurrection, Christ is another great teacher another great philosopher who has gone on through the ages. But because of the resurrection, we know that he was the only begotten son of God. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. You know, for the Roman guard who was there watching him on the cross, he didn't even have to see the resurrection. He knew by the way Jesus died and how he commended his spirit into the hands of God. He knew truly this was the son of God. Mm -hmm. Christ 
was glorified in the gospel, glorified in his resurrection, made renowned, made to be well thought of, made famous, given that victory on earth. Christ was glorified in that he was given victory over the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew what Christ said. He knew, they knew that he said that he would die, that he would be killed, that he would be betrayed, that he would be handed over to the Romans, but he also said he'd be, he'd be raised up on the third day, and the Pharisees like, that's a problem. And if this guy rises on the third day, that proves that he was right and we were wrong. So what do they do? They go to Pilate and they say, hey, we've got we to gotta make a deal here. We need to put a Roman guard on the tomb of Jesus because he, he told us he was going to rise again. I think that his disciples are going to go steal the body and say that he rose again. And so Pilate's like, ah, I'm tired of dealing with you people. Just whatever you want, take it. And so they put a Roman guard there. And what happens? When the disciples arrive on the third day, the tomb is open. The guards are bound, and the Lord is gone. The disciples went on to see the resurrected Jesus numerous times, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that he was seen by the twelve, he was seen by Cephas, by Peter, he was seen by Paul as an apostle out of due season. He kind of catches up with Paul a little bit later, but Paul also makes a point in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because just in case you think that these twelve dudes got together in a room and made this whole story up, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that he was seen of a hundred, no, 200, no, three, no, 500 brethren at once. Some of whom, when Paul was writing those words, some of whom remain unto this day, not unto our day, but unto Paul's day. So when Paul wrote that letter to the Corinthians, he's saying, you guys can go ask them. And let me tell you something, they have no reason to lie about it because by proclaiming the resurrected Christ, they would have killed you back then for saying that. The Pharisees tried to paint Jesus as a deceiver, but his resurrection was undeniable. And it demonstrated that Christ was who he said he was, and he revealed the Pharisees to be the true deceivers. Christ ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, and thus the glory he had in the beginning has been restored to him. Christ prayed to the God to glorify him in this moment, in this hour, in this act of the gospel. And God did it. God glorified him. We're still talking about him. He's still the turning point of human history. Western civilization exists because of him. The United States of America, the way we live here, the way we understand the country today, it exists because of him. Not because Benjamin Franklin had a bright idea 300 years ago, but because of him. He's the one who gave the gospel, who gave the redemption, who transformed generations and tribes and nationalities of people in one fell swoop. And here we are still worshiping him. Oh, he's been glorified. He has been glorified. And he's going to be glorified again when he returns and establishes his kingdom on this earth. When Christ returns, there will be no doubt as to who he is. He's not going to come to earth the same way this time as he did last time where he's going to be born, he's going to grow up, and he's going to go around preaching in the country. He's going to show up in full divine Shekinah glory, and he is going to appear on the Mount of Olives. The believers will rejoice because that will be the day that we see our faith made sight. That will be the day our faith is made tangible. That will be the day that we see the one that we have tr trusted, the one that we have believed in, the one that we have worshipped. We will see him in person face to face and our hope will be fulfilled Amen. and the non-believers will see him 
and will curse his appearing, and if you can believe it, will actually gather together to to do battle against him. But his renown will be irrefutable. CNN will not be able to ignore the events going on in Jerusalem that day. He will be the center of the news cycle, and he will be all things social media that day. He's going to go viral on Facebook if Facebook still exists that day. And when Christ has finished his victory over sin and evil in the world, the Bible tells us every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will be glorified again in a very real and tangible way to us. And that glory necessitates a decision. Y'all have heard me read Isaiah 45, 22 numerous times. I've preached on it. I've told y'all how that was the verse that led to Charles Spurgeon being saved. I've never read verse 23 and 24 to you, to my knowledge, that I can remember. Isaiah 45, 22 through 24 says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength, even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. Look unto me and be ye saved. God is calling us to salvation, and that salvation is looking to him for salvation. To declare that in the Lord have we righteousness, have we found righteousness, have we found that redemption. Nothing in ourselves, we haven't turned over a new leaf, we haven't straightened our lives out. We have found this redemption, this change, this transformation in the Lord and in the Lord alone. Now we still struggle with sin, we still struggle with the past effects of our sin, and we still struggle with that, with that temptation to constantly go back, to constantly recenter on self, to constantly try to pursue the pleasures of the flesh, but we fight that temptation, and that temptation is exhausting. And we find that when we look at things the way Jesus looks at things, and we do what Brother Jared told us about in Sunday school, to let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, we can also find that to be exhausting sometimes because that calls upon us to do some self-sacrifice. That calls upon us to go above and beyond and caring for others, looking after others, providing for others, and leading others to the gospel and to salvation. And it can get exhausting. It can get exhausting. So what do we do? We look forward to the coming of the Lord. Because when the Lord comes, we won't have those temptations anymore. And when the Lord comes, we won't have those responsibilities anymore. When the Lord comes, the only thing we'll need to worry about is praising him and glorifying him and being excited because our faith has just been made sight. And so we're looking forward to that day. But you know there will be those who are incensed against him. Those who are incensed against him. I was reading, I should quit doing that, but I was reading the news. I had no idea until yesterday that there's a Super Bowl commercial about Jesus. And I've mentioned this twice this morning, once in the sermon, once during Sunday school. And the headline on CNN, this is what it's really about. Well, nobody's seen the commercial. They didn't pre-release it. They've got some other videos on YouTube. He Gets Us is the name of the campaign. But... It's about Jesus, and this is being promoted by those Christians. They're incensed. Must be a message of hate. 
if they can afford Super Bowl ads, maybe they can afford for the churches to pay taxes. I mean, all these things are coming out. They're incensed. And you think, well, they just don't know the truth. If they could only see Jesus, they would turn. But the Bible tells us when they do see Jesus, when he does arrive, they're going to be angry at him. There are going to be people that are going to stand there and curse at the, at the risen Savior who has just appeared on earth, calling him a hate monger. But he's going to have the victory over them. The issue is not how righteous or how holy you think you live. It's not how much you give to charity, how well you think you've abstained from vices. It's whether or not your trust was ever in the Lord. There's going to be two types of people that day, those who placed their trust in the Lord and those who fought against him. There's no in-between. You have seen the glory of the Lord. Amen. You have seen the truth of who he is. You have seen his character, his grace, and it has been declared to you from this pulpit week after week. Do you find your hope and righteousness in him? Or have you rejected that in favor of finding your own righteousness? It's important to remember that if we go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve did not sin by violating a dietary law. Adam and Eve, have y'all ever like bought something for yourselves and told your kids not to eat it because it's yours and then they ate it? Did that ever happen? They didn't sin by eating God's favorite apple. They didn't sin by breaking a rule. Adam and Eve sinned because they were trying to kick God out of their lives. Mm -hmm. The question is, is God in your life or have you tried to kick him out? And if you've been living without regard to who he is or his will, you've been kicking him out of your life. Adam and Eve didn't say, God, we hereby kick you out. They kicked him out by pursuing their own knowledge without him. That's how we do it too. So, is God in your life do you trust him? Do you believe in him? And are you looking forward to his redemption and his kingdom? Or are you looking forward to yours? We'll take a moment to stand. And we will sing our verse, Amazing Grace. Amen.